Well, maybe dinosaurs have more in common with present-day birds than they do with reptiles. Look at the pubic bone, turned backward, just like a bird. Look at the vertebrae, full of air sacs and hollows, just like a bird. And even the word raptor means bird of prey. Uh, just a little bit from the 1993 film Jurassic Park. If you thought that dinosaurs were extinct, think again. According to my next guest, Dr. Mark Norell, birds are actually a form of living dinosaur, and the evolutionary connections between birds and dinosaurs can be found in everything from bone structure to flight mechanisms to nesting patterns, not to mention feathers. Dr. Norell is chair of the American Museum of Natural History's Division of Paleontology, and he leads a research team that has been studying the evolutionary relationships between dinosaurs, birds, and crocodiles for decades. He's also the curator of the exhibit Dinosaurs Among Us, which opens on Monday, and he joins today's Please Explain to take your calls about birds and dinosaurs. Dr. Norell, welcome back to our show. Thank you so much. And uh, to our listeners, if you have a question for Dr. Norell, give us a call at 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash lopate or uh, tweet us at at Leonard Lopate. Are all birds descendants of dinosaurs? They certainly are. I mean, just like humans are a kind of primate, birds are a kind of dinosaur. Are certain species of birds more closely related to their dinosaur ancestors than others? No, not really. I mean, in the sense that all living birds are more closely related to one another and shared a common ancestor more recently than they did with any what we call non-avian dinosaur. So do we know what the common ancestor is? We don't really think of things in terms of common ancestry anymore because is that if you think We're about not looking for that missing link. <laughs> no, that's sort of old. 1950s paleontology, but it's uh, that, you know, more we look for closest relatives because you could never really identify what the ancestor was. But the things that are most closely related to living birds are some fairly familiar dinosaurs. Things like Velociraptor, things like Microraptor are extraordinarily closely related to living birds. There are two emus in the Prospect Park Zoo that look something like they come from dinosaur times, um, but they look a lot more like dinosaurs and a sparrow. Certainly, but that's sort of a secondary evolution thing because is that the living group to which emus belong, which are called ratites, includes things like ostriches, you know, emus, rayas, cassowaries. Uh, they had flighted ancestors, so the flightlessness and the gigantism that we see in those birds is a secondary evolutionary characteristic. So they didn't lose their ability to fly? They just never developed it? Oh, no, they lost their ability to fly. That They have you know, close relatives that we know from the fossil record, which are, were flighted animals. Was it just one kind of dinosaur that evolved into birds or several? Well, I think that it's really hard to say what even a bird is because that, you know, that 50 years ago it was pretty clear what was a bird and what was a non-avian dinosaur, just like it was pretty clear what was a human and what wasn't human. But then it started out with paleoanthropology, where there's this remarkable string of Australopithecine specimens and primitive humans that were found. So the whole question of being human was called into play, and that's where we're at with birds right now. Now, people have started calling in almost immediately because when you <laughs> talk about dinosaurs. So, popular. <laughs> so uh, let's take a call from Richard sure. from Harlem. Hi, Richard. Hi. Uh, my question is, why did birds or this particular type of dinosaur, if you prefer, survive when all the other types of dinosaurs went extinct? 
Now, Richard, I was going to ask that question, so I'm so glad you've asked it. (laughs) Well, that's actually a very good question, and actually the extinction problem is not a problem that my lab focuses on that much. However, we do have some thoughts on it, that there's recent mathematical analyses, and some which will be published very quickly, which really show that the non-avian dinosaurs weren't doing all that red hot right before that the asteroid hit. Globally, that there was a lot of things going on. Some of the largest volcanic events ever to happen in the history of the planet were going on. There was massive amounts of temperature change. So it, I think that you know most of us who think about these things think about it more as that uh, the asteroid was the thing that caused the, the straw that broke the camel's back. I mean, it's like uh, you know attributing that the World War One to the assassination of Francis Duke, Francis Duke Ferdinand. So it's really, really, really hard to say. Uh, and uh, uh, didn't dinosaurs survive for many years? And major cataclysms as well. They survived from about 235 million years ago up until 65 million yeah, years But I ago. mean after the the asteroid Well, uh, they did as bir- only as birds because after the asteroid hit, we have no evidence of a non-avian dinosaur So all dinosaur the T-Rexes all. and all those other ones, they just disappeared? They disappeared. And the interesting thing about it is that there were animals like flamingos that were alive at the same time as T-Rex. So they all would have seen the asteroid hit. But T. Rex is one of the last of the non-avian dinosaurs. Did all the survivors have feathers? Well, we feel that uh, all dinosaurs had feathers in some sense. That uh, every I mean, when we say all dinosaurs, maybe not giant titanosaurs and things like that. Just like blue whales don't have hair, which is a typical mammalian characteristic. But the ancestor of all dinosaurs had some sort of epidermal body covering. That, that might not have looked like modern feathers, but they're like spikes and things like that. So when did hair develop? Because in reptiles, we see feathers and we also see hair. We really don't know. And scaly bodies as well without exactly. anything. We really don't know. The oldest hair that we have are from, or fossilized hair we have from, from animals is about 140 million years ago from sediments in China. Lee from Warren, New Jersey. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. Um, Old birds, uh, old birds have no teeth. Are there any dinosaurs, or were there dinosaurs known that did not have teeth? Yeah, that's really a two-part question. That there's lots of dinosaurs which lost their teeth independently from modern birds. Things like Oviraptorosaurs, ostrich dinosaurs, and the like. But the earliest birds, like Archaeopteryx, still retained teeth, and teeth re-evolved after birds lost them one time, then they got them back again. And even in living birds, if the correct experiments are done, you can get expression patterns of teeth in developing chickens. Okay. Yes. Thank you. Now, what about pterodactyls? They flew, but uh, are they related to birds, or were they just another kind of dinosaur that went extinct? They're not even really a kind of dinosaur, but they are one of the closest relatives to dinosaurs. So if we have all dinosaurs and birds are more closely related to one another than any are to pterodactyls. But pterodactyls also had a fuzzy body covering as well that we think is, is related to the origin of feathers. When did we discover that so many dinosaurs had feathers? Because really uh, been, when I was a kid, yeah. they, they looked more like crocodiles. Yeah, certainly. I mean, it's only been in the last couple of decades that you know, people uh, had predicted they may have had feathers, but it was actually 20 years ago this fall when a Chinese paleontologist, Chen Peiji, showed me pictures of an animal that had recently been collected in northeastern China, and that was just the first one. And what purpose did feathers serve the dinosaurs that couldn't fly? Living birds use feathers for over like 25 different things, uh, everything from water repellency to 
a thermal blanket, and a lot of us feel that the early feathers developed for either display, as modern birds use today, or that they evolved as a thermal blanket, as a covering that was associated with an advanced metabolism. Why then should I envy them for having feathers? <laughs> well, they'd envy us for having <laughs> hair. <laughs> Let's take another call. John from Englewood, New Jersey. Hi, you're on the air. Hi there. Um, since birds can, so to speak, talk and communicate with songs, do we know if dinosaurs also had that ability? Well, we think that they were probably very social animals, simply because is that the closest living relative to modern birds are crocodiles. And crocodiles not only communicate with each other when they're adults, they also communicate with each other while they're still inside the eggs. So we think that these characteristics were present in the common ancestor of both crocodiles and birds, and non-avian dinosaurs share that ancestor, so we would predict that they would have that behavior. I'm speaking with Dr. Mark Norell, who's chair of the American Museum of Natural History's Division of Paleontology. Today's Please Explain topic is birds and dinosaurs. This is WNYC, WNYC.org. I'm Leonard Lopate, and we're taking your calls at 212-433-9692, or you can write to us on our show page at WNYC.org. Crocodiles are reptiles. They're cold-blooded, but birds are warm-blooded, aren't they? Certainly. So what happened? Did they share a common ancestor and then diverge, or did, did uh, dinosaurs mostly have warm blood? That's a good question. Certainly, we have a lot of ongoing research towards that problem. I mean, it's very difficult to tell the body temperature of an animal that's been dead for 100 million years or so, but there are ways which we can do that. One of the ways that we can do it is typically warm-blooded animals or animals with advanced metabolisms that they, they grow faster. And since we're able to age these animals, even as fossils, we can tell how fast they grew. And a lot of non-avian dinosaurs grew very, very quickly and as quickly as would be required or would be predicted by them having an advanced metabolism. A listener uh, writes uh, to our show page, uh, are animals like alligators and tortoises and Komodo dragons also descendants of dinosaurs? Not at all. Uh, crocodiles are the closely, most closely related thing to birds, which are living dinosaurs. But we associate crocodiles with alligators. They're very different. Oh, no, alligators and crocodiles, the whole group. But Things like turtles and Komodo dragons are much more distantly related to living birds. People around the country have been watching the National Arboretum's uh, Eagle Cam this week in anticipation of some new hatchlings, and one arrived this morning, I understand. Can we see traces of dinosaur behavior in the hatching process? We haven't really been t able to tell the hatching process, but certainly that there's been multiple nests of dinosaurs that have been found around the world where the young are still present in the nest after they hatched. So it gives some indication that the parents were coming back to take care of the young shortly after that they hatched. And were the nests similar to the kinds of nests that birds make? It depends on how closely related the dinosaur is. I mean, things that are very closely related to birds the nests are very bird-like. More primitively, they're not, that they resemble more crocodilian nests. I've always wondered about the eggs. Uh, some eggs are different colors. Mm -hmm. uh, is, is that just an accident? Yeah, that's a good question also. And there's some great work that's being done in that right now is that one of the characteristics of living birds is that the only thing in the vertebrate arena which has colored eggs. And recently it's been shown that some non-avian dinosaurs also had colored eggs as well because that if you look at the biochemistry of what makes colors on living bird eggs, 
believe it or not, that those same molecules are present in animals which have been dead for 80 million years. Don't certain birds like pigeons and flamingos nurse their young? Do we have any evidence that dinosaurs may have nursed their young? No, there's really no living birds that nurse their young. There's not parental really? care, but there's that they might bring food to the nest and things like that, but they don't, there's not nursing like there is in mammals. Can you learn things about dinosaur nesting and hatching by observing modern birds? Oh, certainly. Are we just Cer- certainly, extrapolating? Certainly the past or the present is the key to the past, but we, uh, are a, we have some fantastic fossils now we can work with. We also have a lot of new technologies that we can work with to be able to determine things that only a decade ago I would have been you know, science fiction. We are taking your calls at 212-433-9692. Stefan from Manhattan, you're on the air. Oh, hi. How, how are you? Good. I'm well. Go ahead. So I, I'm going to have a chicken for lunch, <laughs> and I just wonder, how would the dinosaur taste like? I mean, based on <laughs> probably you'll get to know something about the diet, because we, all we have are just fossils. So is there an idea what the taste of dinosaur meat? There was a New Yorker cartoon some years ago where uh, somebody's eating some old dinosaur and says, oh, it tastes just like chicken. Yeah, well, basically everything <laughs> tastes like chicken almost. But at the same time, uh, if you've ever been in the South and had alligator meat, it tastes like chicken. So that probably non-avian dinosaurs also tasted like chicken. Uh, Jeff from Bridgeport, Connecticut. Hi, you're on the air. Yes, hello, doctor. Thanks for the interesting program. Um, I recall reading as a child in the like early 1960 or something um, that there was an impression of a dinosaur uh, along with the bones showing feathers and I just that stuck in my mind back at that time and then when hints of it came I think mid 80s mid mid 90s and so forth I always wondered uh, somebody must have forgotten this account I think it was found in the the Gobi Desert, around the turn of the century, 1900s. Yeah, I think the specimen that you, you're referring to was a specimen that is in the Amherst collection, and it's one that Hitchcock uh, in the 1860s mentioned, and it's based on the impressions of footprints. Uh, we've, re- we've recently reanalyzed this specimen with uh, one of my colleagues at Florida State University, and it's not really feathers that are making the imprint. Certainly, we think the animal probably had feathers, but at the same time, those imprints were not caused by feathers. Oh. Thank you for calling. Interesting. Thank you. Getting back to the crocodiles, uh, they they lay eggs as do chickens, but it's very different, isn't it? Yeah, it's certainly different. Is that a clue to when they broke off and uh, became reptiles? Well, you know, crocodilians generally, including alligators and everything, generally like lay their eggs in in vegetation mats, and it's the heat from the decomposing vegetation that incubates the eggs. Basically, certainly, if you look at a crocodile egg at the microstructure of it using an electron microscope, you'll see lots and lots of pores because of of the way in which that humidity and gases are exchanged through the egg. You don't see that in living birds. But you do, you do see that in some primitive dinosaurs. You don't see it in the dinosaurs that are most closely related to living dinosaurs, birds, where you have a very bird-like egg. There's an uh, oviraptorosaur fossil in the upcoming exhibit that was fossilized while it was carrying two eggs. Uh, why is that artifact important? 
Well, the oviraptor that has two functioning oviducts is important because living birds only lay one egg at a time. Primitively, that animals have two oviducts, just like females of our own species do. And it was thought that that uh, birds lost one oviduct so they wouldn't have to carry around two eggs while they were flying because of the weight concerns. But I think that we have fossils now that we're able to show that uh, one oviduct occurred before flight occurred. And so the explanation for one oviduct in living birds uh, to make them lighter is not really an appropriate explanation. So the the, the genetic process that allowed uh these dinosaurs to fly preceded flight? Certainly. I mean, so many of the characteristics that are associated with flight, like like uh, feathers, wishbones, hollow bones, all of these things are way deep in the theropod dinosaur family tree and even the dinosaur family tree, so that they're not associated with the origin of flight at all. Tyrannosaurus rex had feathers, for instance. Well, what would be... Well, you said that it had feathers because it would keep it warm and also uh, allow it to and and allow it to uh, shed water. But uh, the bones, the the bones that would have allowed for flight, why would that have been preferable to more solid bones? Especially since some of these dinosaurs were huge. Probably li- like lightness, just in general lightness. I mean, you can if you take a solid piece of steel that's one inch in diameter, for instance, it's not that much stronger when it's when it's faced with compression as a piece of tubular steel is, so that you can have a very light weight, but also a very, very, very strong body with hollow bones. In some cases also that the actual, what we call the, the pneumatic system that is associated with the lungs invades the bones of some of these animals. I'm speaking with Dr. Mark Norell, who is the curator of the exhibit Dinosaurs Among Us, uh, which he put together as the uh, chair of the American Museum of Natural History's Division of Paleontology. The exhibit opens on Monday at the museum, and we're talking about the relationship between dinosaurs and birds on today's Please Explain, inviting your calls to 212-433-9692. You can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash lopate or on Facebook or Twitter, where our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Stay with us for more. We are back with Dr. Mark Norell, who is the uh, chair of the American Museum of Natural History's Division of Paleontology. Uh, he is also the curator of an exhibit called Dinosaurs Among Us, which opens to the general public this coming Monday. And we are taking your calls at 212-433-9692, talking about the relationship between dinosaurs and birds. You can write to us on our show page at wnyc.org slash Lopate, or tweet us. Our handle is at Leonard Lopate. Let's talk a bit about um, intelligence. Uh, Compared to, to reptiles, don't birds have relatively large brains for their body size? And we've done a number of segments on the show about some birds, which are so smart they can do things that dogs and other animals we think of as smart can't do. Yeah, certainly birds have extraordinarily large brains. And for a long time, I felt that uh, that probably had to do with the navigating in a three-dimensional world as opposed to a two-dimensional world. 
but it turns out I was wrong. We were able to use CAT scan technology to be able to build virtual brains of animals like Velociraptor, and they have brains which are nearly identical to the brains of the earliest birds, like Archaeopteryx. So we find out by just looking at the brain case, what the yeah, brain would have been Yeah, looking at the brain like? case, because birds, like ourselves, the brain fills the entire, what we call the endocranial endo, uh, space, cranial space, and you can CAT scan it, and you can come up with a virtual brain, which if you want to make one, you can rapid prototype it, but they're, they're you know, very, very large. I mean, very large. So would that suggest that uh, some of the dinosaurs were really smart? Well, I think smart is a very, very difficult quantity. Well, with the birds, they can oh, solve major problems, as, uh, really. as, as far as data processing, yeah. that as far as solving problems, certainly that they and can And some of them that. even talk. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, have other internal organs been compared between birds and dinosaurs, hearts, lungs, et cetera? We can, we can only do that by inference. I mean, certainly that uh, birds have highly specialized lungs, which that are very efficient. But those same lungs are found in crocodiles now, so that we would infer that then non-avian dinosaurs had them as well. Well, how do they relate to the fish that preceded all of them? Well, the fish that preceded a lot of them, you're going to have to talk to Neil Shubin or something about that because that, uh, that's so far in the distant past of it moving from an air bladder to a lung uh, from gills is a very different question than just major sort of rearrangements of the lungs after that they had formed. Steve on Twitter asks, can any tests be done to see how well dinosaur and bird DNA sequences match up? No. Uh, there's some pretty controversial uh evidence out there that DNA has been found within non-avian dinosaurs. It's not accepted universally, and even if it was accepted universally, it's not a real great comparison because the amounts of DNA are just so small. Let's take some more calls. Stephen from Brooklyn. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, thanks for having me. Wonderful show, as always, Leonard. I'm curious about the vocalizations that dinosaurs may have made. Birds have such complex sounds, and they use them to identify predators and during their complex mating rituals and all of that. Is there any way, even by inference, that we can uh, guess or you know, speculate about the uh, sounds that these creatures may have made? I think we can only really speculate. That, that we have no hard evidence that's tied to that the anatomy of a fossil, which we'd be able to make that kind of prediction. We do have vocalizations in crocodiles, so I'm sure that dinosaurs did vocalize. It was present the common ancestor of birds and crocodiles, but uh, we have no direct evidence that non-avian dinosaurs themselves could do such. I see. So it's just a matter of guess, but it could equally be wrong that these roaring dinosaur sounds could be just very wrong. Yes. Oh, okay. So we we, we assume that the about complex calls for them then. Right. We assume that they roar, uh, as we see in the movies, simply because they're fierce, and that's what we associate with fierce animals. Well, it's also to make the movies better. Uh, I mean, it's sort of like hearing explosions in space all the time, <laughs> and it just yeah. I mean, but they roar like lions rather than right. But like you, we have no, we really have no idea. Rob from Garden City. Hi, you're on the air. Hi, uh, listening to your conversation about bones uh, getting lighter made me wonder, did, is there any evidence that dinosaurs jumped and glided before they learned to fly? I think that there's quite a bit of evidence, and Ashley Hears, who's a postdoctoral student in my lab, is working on that problem, and she's made a lot of, a lot of, you know, 
like really looking at the engineering of what's going on. And you can easily, I think, with her data say that the flight mechanism may have come about as a way to uh, scuttle away from predators or something, especially in young birds. You, there are images of awkward transitional stage birds on your exhibit's yeah, website. Yeah. Birds like the Microraptor. Uh, it has four wings. Yeah, well, the Microraptor isn't even a bird. I mean, it's a relative of Velociraptor, so it's a non-avian dinosaur. And it, ha- it looks like it has four wings. They're four airfoils, but they're just extended feathers that are on the hind limb. That uh, There's some living birds which have some kinds of mutants of pigeons which have sort of the same thing. They're really just unusual things. We've tried some wind tunnel tests to figure out the aerodynamics of them. But, uh, you know, the more you find in the fossil record, the crazier it gets. Neil from Old Tapan. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. Uh, we were just out in uh, central Nebraska to see the uh, migration of the sandhill cranes, and I was wondering if there's any evidence that the um, ancient dinosaurs that could fly would, would migrate. We have no evidence that the ancient flying dinosaurs uh, would were, had, had migration capabilities. Well, there is some evidence, though, that even animals like sauropod dinosaurs, you know, the biggest of all dinosaurs, migrated. And this stuff was done by Martin Lockley by looking at trackways in the intermontane west and looking at the orientation of them and that there's a preferential orientation of them going north-south so that he's, he's you know, developed this into a model of dinosaur migration. Well, that's what birds do generally, but wouldn't we just find fossils of the same dinosaur in uh, Montana and then in South America? The problem is the fossil record isn't that good. We don't have enough rocks that are exactly the same age in the same environments Mm -hmm. to be able to find the same species in multiple continents. Okay, thank you for your call. Sure. Now, do we know when birds in the modern sense of the word first appeared? It really depends on what you call a bird, which is sort of a subjective thing these days because the line between non-avian dinosaurs and birds is so blurred. The first thing that people generally call a bird is Archaeopteryx, and that's just for historical reasons. And it uh, lived about 140 million years ago, and its remains have been found at multiple places in Bavaria. Now, we mentioned the the hollow bones, but don't certain seabirds like uh, cormorants... Uh, which spend a lot of time swimming and diving, have heavy bones? They have heavier bones, but the bones are still really hollow. I mean, penguins, for instance, have the, the heaviest bones of any living birds. And some of that is because is that they dive so deeply that if your bones are totally full of air and not really strong, they're going to explode. What about wishbones? Did dinosaurs have wishbones? Yeah, they sure did. Uh, Tyrannosaurus rex has a wishbone believe it or not. Uh, And wishbones go way back in dinosaurian history all the way to the base of the theropod family tree. You were recently profiled by the New York Times, and you told it that technology has brought paleontology closer to biology. Uh, You say in the past it was more linked to geology? Yeah, I think in up until about 30 years ago or so that most people who got paleontological training came out of geology departments. Well, because you were looking for certain kinds of rock formations. Yeah, rock formations and a lot of a lot of paleontology in those, or vertebrate paleontology in those days was based on on just naming new dinosaurs and building some family trees, but I think that now most of us who are working in the field feel that we're, we're biologists. We're trained as biologists. All my degrees were in biology. My students' degrees are in biology. And we just happen to work on fossils. And you mentioned the use of 
geochemical tools in one of the Times articles. What are they? Uh, there's been a big advance in the use of high-resolution high geochemical tools. So some of them are just things to be able to analyze just different chemicals which that were, are, will tell us something about the life history of animals. One of the big problems that we're looking at now is the colors of dinosaurs, and we're using synchrotron radiation uh, at, to use it as a mass spectrometer to be able to understand whether some of the compounds that color feathers today are still present in animals in the past. So were they just as colorful as today's birds? I think that we can predict that they were. The American Museum of Natural History has just unveiled a model of one of the largest found dinosaurs to date. How big is the titanosaur? It's 123 feet long. How do you fit that into the museum? We don't. <laughs> uh, it, the body is in one room, and the neck sticks out into the hallway. So. <laughs> I, I wonder why uh, something would develop to be that large. Well, I think that it's it always, seems to me that would make it difficult for it to get around. Yeah, I mean, it's always the why question is always the hardest one to answer of why something evolved. But I think that we can look at if if you're an animal which is that big, the the way in which one of the ways you sustain yourself is you have a really long neck. And in the past, people always depicted them as up, like giraffes eating off the tops of trees. But the neck really stuck straight out, and it was sort of like a lawnmower. So it'd be able to take like one step forward eat everything in a semicircle, then one step forward, and like that. Well, for example, we recently just discovered a small version of the T-Rex, but then after some millions of years, pretty much the same dinosaur is 100 times larger. Not 100 times, but uh, certainly well, I, a I lot make up some number here. <laughs> but yeah, As I mean, a non-scientist. There's an old, uh, an old axioms called Cope's Rule that goes back to the 19th century of just that groups tend to develop gigantism independently for evolutionary mechanisms that we have no idea about. Well, it hasn't happened with humans. Well, it sort of has. We'll compare Lucy to us. Scientists are about to begin drilling into the, the crater in the Yucatan Peninsula that is supposedly ground zero for the, the asteroid that wiped out the dinosaurs. Why is this an important expedition? Well, I think it'll. we don't really know what they'll find at Chesco, but certainly everyone admits that a giant asteroid, probably about six kilometers across, hit the planet around 65 million years ago. That's that's larger than any ever? Yeah. At any well, not, time? maybe not any ever, but any within that affected life. That, that the, Certainly when the planet was just forming, there was probably a bit larger ones. But what would we learn other than that the asteroid hit? Uh, I think that they're trying to like figure out, based on the compression features, exactly how big the asteroid was, what direction it came in from, and just more aspects about the asteroid than the effects of the hit itself. And uh, we should point out that the American Museum of Natural History's exhibit that we've also been talking about, Dinosaurs Among Us, uh, which proves once and for all that birds are dinosaurs? Well, I think that it was over in the 1860s when Thomas Huxley first proposed it. But, the uh, 1860s. <laughs> yeah, certainly. Uh, but the, there was so much resistance for so long because we wanted to believe that dinosaurs were really reptiles. I never wanted to believe that. <laughs> you didn't. And, but also that they are reptiles. That, uh, but birds are reptiles as well. Just like hum- Oh, birds are reptiles yeah, even just, though they're warm-blooded? Right, certainly. Just like humans are, are primates and primates are a kind of mammal, birds are a kind of dinosaur and dinosaurs are a kind of reptile. 
The American Museum of Natural History's exhibit, Dinosaurs Among Us, opens on March 21st and will run until January 2nd of 2017. It opens exclusively to American Museum of Natural History members today, and they can go and visit it uh, through Sunday, the the 20th. Uh, it's been a great pleasure having you on our show, and every time I look at those birds in my backyard, I'm going to think... Um, be careful. It could be a, a descendant of Tyrannosaurus rex. Well, certainly it's more closely related to Tyrannosaurus rex than it is to almost any other dinosaur that your listeners would have heard of. Thank you so much for being on our show, Dr. Mark Norell, who is chair of the American Museum of Natural History's Division of Paleontology and curator of Dinosaurs Among Us.